Oh, good morning and welcome to Business Casual. I'm Tyler Kern. Daniel Litwin is here as well. It is October 4th. Thank you so much for being here. I don't know what happened to September, but all of a sudden it's October 4th and we're here. Daniel, it's our first October show. Yeah. And for you and I. I did one with Jeff on Right. Uh, on well, Wednesday, I was about to say, how did you miss, uh, how did you miss <laughs> those previous days in October? But I was going to say, I, I wish it was October 3rd because I would love to have dropped uh, a bite uh, from Mean Girls. You know, it's oh, October yeah. 3rd. Hey, it's October 3rd. That's pretty good. It's a classic, dude. That is classic. It was I also did... my friend's birthday, so you know, I had to give oh. him a shout out. His name's JT. Well, <laughs> JT. If only if we're actually happy belated October 3rd. birthday, my guy. <laughs> You're probably not listening to this, but you know, you might be. If only it were actually October 3rd. No, but uh, it's good to have everyone here on October 4th. It's a good day. It's a good day so far. The Dow is up 131 points after a massive dip earlier on in the week. NASDAQ up 40 points this morning. Price of oil at $53.13 a barrel. We have a lot of great stuff coming up on the show today. We're going to take a deep dive into net neutrality later on in the show. We're also going to take yep. a comprehensive look back at Cable Tech Expo 2019, where Daniel was earlier this week. Sure was. A lot of great stuff coming I called out of in. Show. You called in? What was it like having me on the other end? It was strange. Strange. It was weird. Um, yeah, but uh, you know what? It's good to have you back in the studio. So we're going to get a full update from New Orleans, from everything that went on at Cable Tech Expo 2019. Uh, and then we're also, uh, like I said, we're going to have that net neutrality conversation. Lots of good stuff coming up on Business Casual today. But Daniel, I came across this and had to throw it out there kind of as a, a bantery topic here at the beginning of the show, as we are wont to do sometimes. I love bantery topics. So a, a study has shown recently that Chick-fil-A has the slowest drive through in fast food. Do you believe that? That sounds so wrong to me. Right. I have been through considerably slower drive throughs than Chick-fil-A's. Or maybe it's just that in my head I allow Chick-fil-A to be worse because I prefer their food. So maybe right. they are slow and I just don't notice it. When I think of fast drive throughs I think uh, McDonald's is usually pretty quick. Right. Depends on the time of day. Sure, if, if it's sure. like the middle of the night, you are getting slow McDonald's. Yeah. Jack in the Box, so slow. In and out, very fast. Pretty it, fast. In and out. I feel like I'm in and out when I'm in that I think in and out has one of the best drive through experiences. I agree. Because they give you the option, like, are you going to be eating this in your car? Okay, yeah. here's this little like, convenient tray. Uh -huh. Or you can get it in the bag, you know, if you're just going to wait until you get home. Did the study say anything else beyond, like, why it was the slowest? Or They just say the average wait time at Chick-fil-A is 322.98 seconds, or just under five and a half minutes. Hmm. But... Here's the thing that I have to say about this, is that if you are waiting five and a half minutes for Chick-fil-A, you're doing Chick-fil-A wrong. You need to download the app. Yeah, you know, I'm behind on that. I'm, I'm one of those people that is deterred by the barrier of downloading an app. So... I was too, but now here in the building, there's a Chick-fil-A down kind of, uh, there, there are tunnels, quote unquote, that connect tunnels. different big buildings in, in downtown Dallas. Illuminati tunnels. And down in, the t down in the tunnels, there is a food court and there's a Chick-fil-A in that food court. And the line is always like 30 people long stretching and wrapping around, you know, other areas and running down hallways and that sort of thing. And I was like, man, I want Chick-fil-A, but I don't feel like waiting in this line. Well, I realized I can order on the app and walk down and just pick it up without ever having to wait in that line. But it's not just limited to that 
Chick-fil-A, you could do that at any of them. So I realized this. I order it ahead, and you know I could just walk in and pick it up in the store. Look, man, I've talked to several people on our industry podcast about this. Mm-hmm. Most recently with Acrylec, this is like a big thing they focus on is digital display technology, and that often translates over to digital displays and drive throughs And I had a whole podcast with um, one of their team members about improving the drive through experience. Sure. And that right now, the outdated displays, mm-hmm. everything, it's just, it's too impersonal, even though the the vision of the drive through initially was honestly to be slightly more convenient and personal than even stepping in the store because there's a human touch point. You're in your right. car. It's comfortable. They're servicing you in your car. There's just something personal about that. And now drive throughs are very distant. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the touch point is not there. So right. apps like this, like you're describing, though I'm not probably the prime recipient because I, I am deterred by that barrier, um, people find that is it is way more convenient yeah it improves the process and it definitely makes sitting in the drive-thru a more personal thing because your order is already taken mm-hmm. so when you talk to the people it's more of a conversation it's not like what can i get you, you yeah know, and you're like screaming over the traffic and trying to make sure the box picks you up and exactly clarifying i wanted a medium not a large dr pepper exactly well so at the chick-fil-a by my house even though i order on the app they have two drive-through lanes and a person standing at each drive-through lane with an iPad hmm. to take orders and to answer questions and to do things like that. So crazy. Exactly. It's nuts. It's but they they're, they are kind of trying to have that human touch point even with an app and even us- utilizing the technology. So anyways, all of that to say, if you're waiting 5 minutes for a Chick-fil-A drive-through, you're doing something wrong. You're doing it wrong. They say the fastest drive-through by the way is Duncan, which we don't have a lot of here. <laughs> no. I know of two of them kind of over in my neck of the woods, and I don't know that either of them have a drive-thru, so we have not experienced that. Okay, speaking of gigantic brands, Daniel, I came across this story (laughs) and thought this was interesting. Okay. Did you enjoy that segue? I did. Um, It's even better when you point it out afterwards. Yes. (laughs) Um, So Disney Plus may not be on Fire TV. So Disney and Amazon are having a bit of a dispute here. Um, And Disney Plus, the new streaming service provided by Disney, that's going to include, you know, the Marvel movies and all Disney's stuff. There's also ESPN Plus on it and Hulu, all, all of those things. Disney Plus may not be on Fire TV due to an ad dispute. Now, what Amazon wants is a larger share of the ad space on Disney Plus and Disney's other streaming platforms. Disney is reluctant to give this up. So they're kind of at a stalemate, right? Amazon wants this. Disney does not want to give it. And if they can't resolve it, then Disney Plus won't be available on Amazon Fire TV anywhere on that particular ecosystem. Yeah. So there's this big dispute between gigantic brands. Why does it matter? I think it's in the best interest of both of these kind of entertainment giants, so Mm -hmm. to speak, or you know, content providers, whatever you want to call them. I think it's in their best interest to work this out on some level, right? Like if you are Amazon, you're going to drive people to go buy whatever else, you know, a Chromecast or go, you know, find other means to, uh, find other means, I guess, to watch your TV and get away from the fire stick. Right. Uh, If you're Disney Plus, maybe some people don't do that and they just decide it's not worth the hassle to go get a new device just to be able to watch Disney Plus stuff. So I think it's in the best interest of both of these companies to figure out this, this thing. I've got, I've got two main points to unpack here. The first is, I think this is indicative of... Some of the issues we're going to see from these giant conglomerates Mm -hmm. owning so much of our literal media content. So when you look at 
ownership right now of the media we consume, Disney, I mean, it's it's astounding how much of the actual content that we watch, movies, film, everything, they actually have ownership over. Right. Uh, we saw it recently with their dispute with Sony to keep Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's a good point. You know, there were so many people on Twitter, on the internet, just like crying and moaning about, oh my god, like, Spider-Man, keep him around, Spider-Man, please, like, we, <laughs> you know, we, we need him in the MCU, and it's like, look at what you're doing as a consumer. Right now, you are just buying into these multi-million, bill, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar yeah. companies, yeah. If, at least if we're talking about Disney, just battling over creative control of something that's part of the public persona. So it's like, it's frustrating to see... And I feel like it doesn't really add much value to the content when you've got it controlled by these monster companies. Mm -hmm. um, now, that being said, I feel like this Disney Plus Fire Stick dispute is also indicative of how important media agnosticism or this like kind of white box open source vibe is for the future of... Um, media consumption and just IT and tech in general. Because if you're going to have these giant media conglomerates pushing for proprietary, right? Mm -hmm. No, if you want to watch X thing, you have to buy our device and use our streaming platform and blah, 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 blah. I mean, people are already being price gouged for that. Right. Uh, and if now we're going to be price gouged further on the tech itself... I think that's going to have a negative impact because we're seeing the benefits of collaboration between companies when they go for the white box style solution. Mm -hmm. Like your Chromecast, which just eats any piece of content, right? Let's say Chromecast now suddenly was like, we're not going to stream any Disney, any Hulu. Right. Uh, we're not going to stream any Netflix. You have to subscribe to Google Stream mm -hmm. and we are going to you know, pay those companies to then have their stuff on there. Oh my God. So that's another thing now I have to pay for, right? That just doesn't fly with a consumer, and eventually we're going to hit a breaking point. I feel like we're close. Uh, we are I, close. I feel like we're close. Unbundle, you know, and, and go a la carte at your own risk. Literally. Right? Like, it seems so great, right? Like, what if I only had to pay for the things I want? But then when you give control to the companies that own that content, then it's up to them to set the price, and they're going to set that price at what works best for them, not at what works best for the consumer. Right. And I also understand where Amazon is coming from here to a degree as well, because... Uh, honestly, if you look at how their revenue stacks up, stuff like their Fire Stick, like Amazon TV, like Amazon Prime, um, that subsidizes their non-profitable retail business. Even though their retail business is like the core of right. what they do, it doesn't really make that much money. And so they utilize Amazon retail to push other products which do make a ton of money mm -hmm. like your fire stick like delivery services stuff like that so uh, you know the, the shipping costs incurred that then amazon gets to absorb sure sure so you know if disney plus and amazon are going to uh have some quabbles and some some back and forths here i mean i can definitely see why amazon wants the the fire stick to continue to bring in revenue sure uh, because if now suddenly they gut a big chunk of revenue from a giant media behemoth like disney that could impact their bottom line so i see where they're coming from but again i just it's frustrating for me as a consumer a media consumer to see these giant 
behemoths fight over, you know, what content is going to be shown where. Yeah. And who does that end up affecting? You know, it affects us, uh, the poor, sad TV watchers. So exactly. we're just kind of at the whim of <laughs> these these big companies deciding when and where we're going to be able to see this content. So it's, it's just, it's a little frustrating, but... It feels like Clash of the Titans 2, you know? Re- release the fire stick? Ex- ex- well, it's Amazon versus Disney. Who's going to come out on top of of that, oh big, uh, that big clash? Uh, other big story that uh, that I noticed, Daniel, and this this was, I don't know, particularly fascinating to me. Uber's helicopter trips to JFK International Airport are now open to all customers. So you can take an Uber helicopter from a helipad in, uh, I believe, like kind of lower Manhattan. Now, these trips start at $200 a person, and they're available to anyone with an Uber account. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the helipad is in lower Manhattan. So the service includes that an Uber ride to the helipad. Then an eight-minute helicopter trip, followed by one more Uber ride to the terminal. Okay. Now, Eric Ellison, head of Uber Elevate, said this is our first step to what will become a future Uber Air network. <laughs> so oh, I don't know why that makes me laugh. It's just, <laughs> it's just so bizarre. It's, but it's, it's cool, bizarre. but it's like, wow, what? An Uber Air network? That's nuts. Now, here's the thing. The total trip time, uh, there was a story that I believe CNBC did um, where they took all of the different options for your your transit to get to the airport, right? You've got mass transit. You've got just taking a a regular Lyft, you know, or Uber. You have – there's another, I believe, helicopter kind of service called Blade. Um, which is kind of a startup doesn't have quite the name recognition of maybe an Uber or whatever, but so they took, uh, it is a good name. I I, I do appreciate it. So they took all of them and compared, okay, how long does it take and what's the cost? So for Uber to go from that spot, you know, where they, they pick you up and take you to the helipad. I I, I don't know that they all start at the same spot. So you go from this, this spot in lower Manhattan to the helipad. Uh, to then take that helicopter ride and then one more Uber ride to the to the terminal. Fifty two minutes and it costs you two hundred and twenty eight dollars <laughs> for oh. the same trip. If you took the MTA's just public transport, like what you have available to you in New York City, sixty six minutes, so fourteen minutes longer, but fifteen bucks. Hmm. So is it worth two hundred and thirteen <laughs> extra dollars? To carve off like 15 to minutes. To carve off 14 minutes 14, of your travel me. time to the airport. Um, I'm not made of that kind of money yeah. yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hint, probably, hint. Probably ever. But uh, so while it sounds like a great idea, and you know maybe you're maybe you're somebody that you know, doesn't take the subway or some, something like that, doesn't want to navigate the public transportation system. I don't know. The benefit just doesn't seem to be there yeah. yet. Look, I, I don't want to dwell on this one too much because we have some great stories coming up that I don't want to miss. Right. But I, my point that I want to mention here is that I feel like with these startups, these kind of transportation startups, or um, I, I feel like I see it a lot in uh, software management, stuff uh-huh. like that. It often ends up appealing to people with the capital, with the resources to uh, play in that game. AKA, it's kind of price capped. So, yeah. you know, or it's salary capped. Like, you have to have a certain level of wealth to be able to enjoy something like this. Because, yeah, that uh, difference is negligible in my opinion like Mm -hmm. 14 minutes i'll just wake up 14 minutes earlier uh to make up that time right now could this eventually become more affordable yeah 100 percent 
but I think right now it's definitely like a luxury thing, and it makes me wish, why won't Uber maybe instead partner with like the New York City public transportation system and see is there any way that we as Uber can make money off of how, maybe improving the system? You know, partnering like we saw in Jersey. Uh, Jeff mentioned um, a few episodes ago uh, how they're doing like on-demand buses, right. basically partnering. Uh, I don't know if they were partnering specifically with Lyft or Uber, if they were just taking note from Lyft and Uber. Um, I'm, I'm blanking. But regardless, it's just it's interesting to see this dynamic of like, oh, you have a horrible mass transit system. Well, here's our solution. A $200 plus <laughs> helicopter ride. Yeah. It's just, it's like, it seems like, okay, you're not really solving the issue here. You're providing a luxury solution to people that can afford it. Um, is that really in everyone's best interest? I don't know. Is it in Uber's best interest? I don't know. But I mean, it's, is it proof of concept though? That, it like, is cool. It's, possible? it's cool. Yeah. So it's like, gonna, I'm going to have to give them cool points. If, if on some way, like if it were 50 bucks at some point, you know, if you can, if you can scale this and drive the cost down a little bit because it's widely available yeah. and it's 50 bucks, then maybe I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I am terrified of helicopters though. Yeah. So there's, there's that aspect as well. All, all right. right T. We got to step aside. We got to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to dive into all things cable tech for the next, uh, maybe 10 minutes or so. Yeah. So stick around for that. That's coming up here on business casual. Boom. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news, you're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketScale can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to marketscale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. All right, squad. So real quick, want to intro this so we can listen to all this great thought leadership. I was at Cable Tech Expo 2019 in New Orleans. I was there earlier this week. Uh, It was a lot of fun. You know, New Orleans is hot and muggy. But the giant convention center, the Ernst Morial, I believe it's called Ernst Morial, Ernest Morial uh, Convention Center, is um, nice and air conditioned. So I was not feeling the mugginess, which Less is good. Less hot and muggy. Less hot and muggy. Um, but the thought leadership was hot, and it was not muggy. Oh. It was it was clear, spicy, spicy. So I interviewed a lot of people on the show floor at Cable Tech talking about the rollout of five G. Wireless and the rollout of 10G wired broadband. Mm-hmm. Uh, both different. The Gs mean different things. 5G is like the fifth generation of wireless. 10G means literally 10 gigabits um, and uh, providing the infrastructure for that over Doxis or over fiber. Regardless, I-, I spoke to a lot of people and they gave me different perspectives on how 5G and 10G might affect society, how it might affect telecom and broadband companies, ISPs, they all had different things to say, so I made a about a five-minute montage here. I want you all to listen here. The first person we're going to hear from is from Spectrum's Smart City uh, division. He's got some great thoughts on how 5G is going to affect smart cities, how we don't need to wait for 5G to take advantage of smart cities, and then we're going to hear from a bunch of different people. Their names are included, so enjoy. We'll be back in about five minutes with some commentary. My name is uh, Satya 
Parimi. I'm the Group Vice President of Enterprise Data Products and Smart City Solutions. Uh, I, it's a very common uh, uh, misconception in the industry that you need 5G right. to do smart city solutions. Uh, you can do them now. I think we already have a gig network today. Uh, none of the smart city technologies require that kind of bandwidth. Right. Uh, I think it's more about leveraging the technologies already available and getting started now versus starting to or wait for 5G or 10G. Because with, with the current technologies we have, with fiber, we can go up to 10 gig symmetrical. With coax technologies, we can do one gig and we have one gig deployed everywhere. We have tremendous coverage with Wi-Fi and we're looking at new technologies like CBRS. So smart cities don't need to wait for anything. Yeah. They can get started now. But when, when cable industry as a whole does 10G, what it really does is it opens up more depth of availability of the network, right? So a 10G symmetrical on coax, for example, can be powerful because it's everywhere. And, uh, and that's the thing, actually, it's a great question you asked because uh, we get asked from the cities as well about hey, what's going on with 5G, should we have to wait for 5G? And our answer is, uh, no, you don't have to. You can right. start now. Yes, we can take advantages of 5G as it comes out down the road, uh, but start now. And uh, we're getting really good feedback from uh, cities about that. Teresa McGahey and uh, Senior Director of Marketing, focused mostly at our uh, systems, but solutions overall. For the company Calix. Calix, awesome. If you blanket things, you're gonna hit a lot of people that have no need. I mean, if you look at a regular home today, um, we've got data that shows that an average home, between the periods of six to nine, one of the most um, busy times, uh, really only averages about 10 megabits. But then there's other homes where there's that exception, 500 megabits, you know, et cetera. And so why blanket it everywhere? Put it where it makes sense. Saj Jamal, and my title is VP of Marketing, and the company is SimWave. I think the, the biggest thing, as these new technologies come out, it's because we need the pipes to be larger. Yeah. We need more data to get through there. And the reason is what, you know, people, the, the work is shot at high resolution, and now our TVs are 4K, they will go to 8K, so the requirements of bandwidth are higher and higher. And so the importance of quality is just going to go up. It, it, I just need to know that it works better. But the other part of the equation is there's, you're testing, does the network support it? But if people are more mobile and want TV everywhere, if I have a fixed connection, but I want to continue the way, game as I move, yeah. what happens to it? You know? And again, not in terms of did the bits get through, did it interrupt my show? And so we, we, we say that as this TV everywhere becomes more of a thing, the, the more important it is to, to know. Yeah, my name is Kurt Raflob, and I am the head of strategic solutions marketing at Adtran. 10 gig's not just about delivering you know, 10 gig to a home. Most people can't wrap their head around that, and really that is you know, many, time, uh, many years away, but 10 gig absolutely as an aggregation. Yeah. Like a 10 gig to an MDU, so important. Um, whether that's on fiber, whether that's on coax, whether that's wireless, you know, we have those type of solutions because we really have to be um, media agnostic yeah. and allow that same, fire, that, that same um, subscriber experience to be, be ubiquitous and be consistent and universal regardless of that media. First name is David, last name is Kozacek. Currently I work in a group called Market Development and I'm an engineer in the Market Development Group. For Corning. For Corning. Yes sir. We do the plumbing of the network. And in terms of what I've seen the customers buy into innovation, 
are the ways we're solving deployments of that plumbing. Our stuff is on poles, it's down in the ground, it's, it's in a manhole, right? But those are the kind of problems that our customers come and ask us to solve. I just talked to a gentleman out there, he asked about 5G networks, right? How does Corning feel about 5G cellular? We kind of think about it differently, right? The problems we get asked to solve is, the client comes in and says, hey, I have one tower now, it services this whole area. Now the client comes in, this whole area, I need to have a hundred of these here, right? Yeah. Or maybe a thousand. Yeah. And then the problem comes from the client, everything gets lower, right? What was on a tower now is on a light pole, on a building, on a street lamp. And the questions we get is like, hey Corning, how am I gonna run cable up that light pole? Uh, my city of doesn't want a gigantic box on the side of that, how do you solve that? Oh, by the way, you need to put it on that building? Well, that building happens to be Paul Revere's house, right? You're walking down the street in Boston, his house is right there on the left, right? As you're gonna go get an Italian dinner. I love that last bit of commentary. Though. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> going to get an Italian dinner, and uh, you know, oh, Paul Revere's house is there, you gotta set up some 5G wires there. <laughs> I love it. I just, it, great, made me laugh. You can probably hear my chuckle there in the, in the bit. But, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Look, everyone had something different to say, but there were some commonalities there. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite point from uh, our friend over at Spectrum's Smart Cities division was that you know this idea of a smart city is not futuristic anymore. It's 100% accessible. Right. We see it in city smart lighting, smart parking, mm -hmm. smart agricultural solutions. Um, and those don't need 5G to win. They can work off of the infrastructure we've already got, the DOCSIS infrastructure, the fiber infrastructure, even the wireless infrastructure, the LTE that's already out there. Sure. We don't need 5G to make it happen. Um, and that seems to be a misconception that, you know, when people think emerging tech, they think, oh, IoT, smart cities, 5G. It's, it's all the same, and it, we need all of them to be able to have our big smart car world from iRobot. You know, yeah, but that's yeah. not as tangible right now. We can get smaller smart city solutions deployed without an entire nationwide 5G infrastructure. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, did anything stand out to you? I did enjoy the, the that last part, actually. You know, so w where he's talking about they don't want gigantic boxes on the side of right. light poles and that sort of thing that... Smart city, while you know being functional, also has to make sense for the general aesthetic of a city. It has to make sense for the design aspect of, of what you're trying to do around a city. And so making tech make sense for what a city is supposed to look like and what a city you know ideally would look like, yeah. um, I, I think makes a lot of sense in having that conversation. I'm curious, when, when the topic of 5G came up, did, did you have a lot of conversations about practical use cases these days you know and yeah and what the future could realistically look like because we have a lot of grandiose conversations and, and you're right a lot of times it's like oh well when, when 5g is here when 5g is here and, and that sort of thing but w what's it actually going to look like because yeah. it sounds like every everybody in every industry is like oh when 5g is here it's going to be insane and it's going to affect all this stuff but will it actually do all of those right. things or or like what how how will our lives actually look? Right. I mean, it's, uh, to tell you the truth, we weren't talking a ton about end vision deployment and what 5G futures will look like in 10 years. Because honestly, to a lot of people at Cable Tech, 
it is kind of like fairy tale conversation still. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I mean, it's cool and it's definitely reachable, but they're more worried about okay, am I going to have to lay new fiber infrastructure to make five G happen? Yeah, you know, um, what about rural America? Twenty five percent of rural markets still don't even have high speed internet access. Right, right, right. Things like that are what are driving the conversation at Cable Tech. Not so much like what are the big telemedicine um, potential use cases of five G, even sure. though that is still cool conversation. But I, I think you heard it from Saj at mm-hmm. SimWave. When he's talking about video distribution, that is kind of one of the most tangible things that you can see for 5G moving forward. The idea of video everywhere and a mobile wireless uh, viewing and consumption of media. So the challenges that his company is working on are trying to solve the encoding and the bit rate and the the distribution and delivery challenges of high-quality video over things like 5G. So when 5G does become um, ubiquitous Mm -hmm. and a standardized thing here in the United States, uh, people are going to want to take advantage of that 5G capacity to, you know, be streaming something on their iPad or, you know, let's say something with data. Let's say on their iPhone, um, you know, they're watching Game of Thrones, reruns, and then they want to walk out and walk the dog all the way to the park. Well, Mm -hmm. being on Wi-Fi, obviously that would interrupt... The stream, But if you're on 5G, the idea is that you should be able to go from fixed wired connection, which I'm even just going to call Wi-Fi in the home, mm-hmm. to step outside and suddenly use 5G and the video is going to be seamless. It's going to be the same thing, same quality. That is the kind of tangible thing that I think consumers can look at. They can be like, oh, wow, what? I can stream Netflix from my home, walk in all the way to the metro and then to work and not have my feed interrupted? No yeah. way. Those are the kind of tangible applications that I think are uh, more useful to talk on. But I, I agree with your point. I think the infrastructure conversation is the one that is most interesting because mm-hmm. we heard from Teresa Calix that you know she's advising people not to do full 10G uh, broadband rollouts just kind of in a blanket manner Yeah, because it's not cost effective, especially when you're an independent or a small market operator. Uh, you know, a full rollout of 10G is is billions of dollars, mm-hmm. a- at least millions. But, you know, let's say if we're talking multiple markets and you're a, even a mid-sized company, it's a billion-dollar investment. Right. Uh, you know, Comcast, um, some of these larger ISPs, uh, they're spending billions of dollars on 10G deployment right now. Um, so, you know, how do you take advantage of 10G in the most cost-effective way possible. And, you know, we're hearing from uh, Kurt at Adtran. We heard from Mr. Kozicek at Corning that taking advantage of the infrastructure that's already available, so Mm -hmm. finding ways to put 5G um, backhaul stressors on the DOCSIS networks that already exist, so the kind of the outdated, you know, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, the outdated cabling um, can actually empower 5G. You don't need to redeploy fiber everywhere. Right. Right. Um, so there's there's a lot of cool stuff happening here. But I think what cable operators, what broadband providers, what ISPs should be looking at, what the telecom industry should be looking at is how can we take advantage of the infrastructure that already exists mm-hmm. as we roll out 5G and 10G? Um, because redeploying fiber is costly and takes forever so the fiber that's already out there you know how can we send multiple wavelengths through it 
I saw plenty of companies trying to do solutions in that realm. Right. How can we deploy it over Doxus? I mean, it's it's really interesting. Um, and the media agnosticity or agnosticism, excuse me, is uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to conjugate that word. The media agnosticism is also really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. White box solutions, open source kind of solutions that play with any media content and play with any kind of interconnected uh, technology is necessary to mm-hmm. really take advantage of 10G and 5G moving forward. I don't think the proprietary solutions are going to last. They're going to be beaten out. So those are all just my thoughts based on all those conversations. But I feel like I'm definitely more in tune with the 5G, 10G world after cable tech. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Any final thoughts on all that? We'll have to unpack that later. We'll have to unpack it later. We are out of time. All right, y'all. So we are going to be chatting FCC net neutrality on a little on-demand piece of content. So head to our website here soon. We'll be hearing that, um, unpacking that decision, kind of table t- cable tech oriented, excuse me. Um, but yeah, Tyler, another great episode. Another great episode. We're launching two more radio shows here on MarketScale Radio. The Maverick of Marketing with Shannon Maverick. That's going to be on Mondays at 9 a.m. And then Revenue Radio with Tim Maitland, our VP of Business Development here at MarketScale. He's going to be uh, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Huge. So, huge. Two Itch. more radio show here. Two more radio shows here <laughs> on MarketScale Radio. Make sure to tune in for those. Daniel, let's get out of here, man. Let's get out of here. Peace, everyone. Have a good rest of your Friday.